You're listening to the Running in Production podcast, where developers and engineers talk about their tech stacks, lessons learned, and general tips from running web apps in production. Here's Nick and today's guest. Welcome to Running in Production. Today, I'm with Nate Rush, who helped create a Python package and JupyterLab extension that lets you generate Python by editing a spreadsheet. Nate, welcome to the show. Hey, Nick. How's it going? It's super great to be on and to meet you. Doing well. Happy to have you on. So do you want to start us off by introducing yourself and letting people know a little bit more about what your extension and Python package does? Absolutely. Yeah. So I am the technical lead for a project called Mito. You can check us out at trymito.io. We are a Python package and JupyterLab extension, as you said. And effectively, what we do is we add a spreadsheet into your Python workflow. Um, so you can kind of think about us like an Excel, but we sit inside of JupyterLab. When you edit the Excel spreadsheet um, that is Mito, it will generate code for you that corresponds to those edits. Um, and practically, this is useful for folks who are kind of just getting started with uh, Pandas data science or looking to kind of visualize and understand their data. We help them effectively do data science quicker. Um, awesome. So for listeners out there, do you want to give a TLDR on what a Jupyter Lab extension would do or even like what Jupyter Notebooks are in general? Absolutely. So Jupyter Notebooks are, um, if you've done any Python data science, you've probably heard of Jupyter Notebooks. Can I ask, Have you, Nick, have you personally done any uh, Jupyter work? I have not. I'm aware that it exists, but I haven't used it firsthand. Exactly. Yeah. So if, if you haven't um, heard of Jupyter Notebooks, I guess I'd be surprised. Um, everyone's at least probably seen them. But, but effectively, a Jupyter Notebook is an interactive programming environment where you can write Python code. It sometimes supports other programming languages, but it lets you write Python. Um, and easily visualize outputs. So it's super useful if you're manipulating data, graphing data, presenting data, et cetera. And it's kind of the go-to, let's say, Python environment for um, data scientists across the spectrum, whether you're hardly even qualified as a data scientist or if you're kind of an expert. In terms of what a JupyterLab extension looks like, effectively, Jupyter is built in a super modular way that lets anyone extend um, the application with their own kind of output format. So functionally, what that means is that we as developers can come in and say, you know what's missing here? Users can't see their data in a spreadsheet and interact with their data in a spreadsheet. And so what we can add is essentially a spreadsheet front end. In our case, we built it in React. The React component slots into existing JupyterLab. Uh, and if the user installs it, then displays in their JupyterLab. And then there's also a backend component of this, which essentially slots into the Python kernel that is part of the um, JupyterLab application as well. So essentially, the way to think about this is Jupyter is a two-part system. It has a front end that allows you to write Python code and see outputs, and a back end system, which is a Python kernel, which actually processes um, the commands that you're running. Uh, and we have an, the, the extension effectively fits into both parts of that at a high level. Okay. Yeah, that's definitely a great overview. So I guess from the user's point of view, they're not necessarily looking at this in a browser. They're looking at this directly inside the Jupyter notebook through whatever interface it gives you. Yeah, exactly. And and most users do interact with their Jupyter Notebooks through a browser. So if you type the Jupyter space lab command on your computer, usually what it does is it launches a browser where you can kind of interact with your notebooks. Um, other users use different applications, but that's kind of actually the main way that users see it. Ah, very nice. So when it comes to building this application, are you the sole developer on this project or is there a team behind this one? Team behind it. Thank God. Um, I don't think I'd make it very far by myself. Um, so it's me and one other co-founder of the project uh, named Aaron diamond -Rivich. Um We're kind of the two main product designs as well as uh, technical folks who uh, actually develop the package. Okay. So how do you split your role up when it comes to development? Do you work on the back end? He works on the front end? Or do you kind of just both do whatever needs to be done? Yeah, we both kind of do whatever is need to, needs to be done. Um, it's a it's an interesting process, I think, for us to kind of navigate that. We initially, I think, thought kind of about splitting it along those lines of front end, back end, but eventually realized that we both wanted to be fluent in, in all of our code base. And so actually now prioritize the exact opposite. If there's code that one person hasn't touched, we'll actually, you know, get nervous about it and say, maybe you should, you know, take the next, next feature here. Yeah, that's always nice when two developers are more kind of sort of know enough about everything to kind of touch every part of the code base. You're not just like locked in an isolated area. Yeah, exactly. And I was going to actually ask you, in terms of the folks that you talk to usually, I haven't listened to a ton of your podcast, but in terms of team size, do you usually see, you know, something as small as us? Or are you mostly talking to folks with large engineering organizations? Oh, it's definitely like super mixed. So I would say probably 
half the episodes are just one developer. So there's everything ranging from one developer to like 200 developers. That's super awesome. That's really cool. Well, I'd love to hear your thoughts as we kind of get into it about, you know, how, how we actually split up technical work and how we're approaching things to, you know, I think the big thing for us is since we're so small, stuff like your podcast is so great because it allows us to essentially check ourselves and say, how crazy are we? You know, <laughs> how off base are we here right. with what the crazy stuff we're doing? Yeah, for sure. Although just disclaimer, I am technically not here to give you like unsolicited advice about some stuff, right? Like I'm happy to go over that stuff, but it's not me like, grilling you on every tech choice you made and be like, why'd you do that? That was like really dumb. For sure. Yeah. No, it totally makes sense. <laughs> but uh, as for this whole project as a whole, how long has it been up and running for in production? So we launched a landing page with not much tech built um, about six months ago. If six months ago is October, um, time is hard at this point, but uh, we launched and then we actually launched the application about a month and a half after that into production and started having kind of real users use it in a real workflow to solve real problems, you know, in businesses, um, probably in late November at that point. And so we've been in production since then. Well, wow, that's really fast. So throughout that whole period of time, like a month, month and a month and a half, whatever, was that developing the extension as well as the site? Or is that just the site? So that was just developing the extension. We launched with a super kind of bare bones, minimal site, um, and then just kind of posted it on Reddit, got some a surprising amount of initial interest, actually, mostly from folks in kind of the data science slash Excel stratification. Um, subreddits are a really great way to find folks who, you know, might be interested in what you're kind of working on. Um, and so kind of the entire first month for us was just like a helter skelter specification of the first version of the tool and, uh, you know, actually building it out. And I will, I will say it was definitely quick to get to kind of a first MVP. Um, it didn't do much. Um, we've been running in production since then, but actually doing useful things in production, maybe that's a different question. Right. And just to be clear here, before we move on to like how the extension was built itself, you do offer both a way to run this locally within your own offline notebook, as well as a hosted solution. Yeah, exactly. So I think that um, this is a really interesting area of kind of thought that we have within our company, which is essentially how, what is the best way for us to kind of distribute our application and kind of the, let's say the SaaS orthodoxy would tell you, you know, slap it in a web browser, put it on the cloud, distribute your application to your users, just like that, have them sign in to your system. Um, and this is something that we kind of initially did. We spent a bunch of time, you know, setting up a Kubernetes instance. Um, we'd spin up Docker containers for people and kind of give them access to a Jupyter notebook, um, each in their own Docker container on our server on AWS. And we can definitely get into that architecture um, as we get into it. But we eventually realized that for most of these users, there, there were a couple of reasons that they actually preferred having this application local. And so we kind of moved away from this super server-centric approach and towards what we call local deployment or local first applications might be a term that you've heard before. It's just installing on someone's computer, but effectively for the user, it A, uh, gets rid of some privacy concerns that they might have, but also B, allows us to actually sit in the context of their workflow. Um, and, and with that kind of end user deployment comes a, a ton of interesting challenges around installation and environments and upgrading and stuff like that that we've, we've had to deal with. But yeah, high level, we do both, but right now we're currently kind of focused on local installation just because it's where our users, you know, want us to be. Right. Do you think long-term you're going to phase out the whole aspect of you just hosting it for them in the future? Yeah. Um, I think we've definitely been moving in that direction. Um, we definitely find that users get more, much more use out of the tool when it actually is in their workflow versus, you know, being something that they have to go find and, and seek out themselves on a, on a separate system. So we're definitely playing it by year. And, uh, you know, this is kind of, let's call it, an extended V1. So we'll see where it goes. But uh, currently, I'd say yes. Okay. Yeah, we definitely have lots to discuss here. Now, it is. it must be pretty fun trying to handle those local installs because, yeah, it's not just like you're deploying to one Linux distro, right? It's like, well, you have Windows 10 Home Edition and Pro Edition. And then there's Mac OS with eight different versions and then like 15 distros of Linux and stuff. Do you support all of them or like to some degree? Yeah, we, we support uh, we support all of them um, to some degree, at least um, their different systems have varying levels of success in terms of installation. I'll say that. But, you know, the, the worst thing even than Windows versus Mac versus Linux is the fact that we're a Python package means that we have to contend and fight with people's existing kind of Python installations on people's computers, which I know per from personal experience, my local Python installation has always been screwed up. You know, Python is Python 2 and Python 3 is Python 2 sometimes. And I never know what's going on. But it turns out that the madness that exists in the world with people's Python installations is like almost unimaginable. The, the number of ways that people have just done crazy, crazy things to their their systems. 
Uh, and so it puts us in this situation where, um, you know, installation, if we just let users do it by themselves, is successful 50% of the time. Uh, and otherwise, you know, we have to sit down with them and kind of help them actually work through, you know, what the hell did you do here with your Python uh, local installation that is like so screwed up and how can we help you fix it? Yeah, that's always been a fun problem where it's like, yeah, you could just be like pip installing stuff to your systems version of Python, or you make a virtual environment or something in between. Yeah. Yeah, no, exactly. And it's, it, it turns out that most people actually install to their system. Uh, probably, I would say 95% of the people that we talk to. I mean, you know, these are not, most of our users, I would say, are not, um, you know, they're, they're in the beginning journey, their beginning journey with Python. And so they're still kind of figuring stuff out. And I know that, like, I personally didn't use virtual environments until uh, maybe it was too late. So um, we usually end up in a crazy system with crazy bugs and crazy errors that we have to kind of dig into. Right. So have you looked into ways to install this through Docker as well or no? Yeah, so we have used Docker in the context of our kind of Kubernetes deployments. Um, and so we definitely have like, you know, Docker images that one could install that would allow you to effectively use Mido. The way to think about a local Docker image is somewhere in between a full local installation and like a server deployment. And effectively what I mean by that is like, there's this like, question of how in the user's current workflow are we, right? The reason that we're a JupyterLab extension, and this is maybe one of the things I, sh I should have highlighted earlier, is because we want to meet users where their workflow currently occurs because we're attempting to solve problems with their current workflow. And so we could ask them to say, hey, come to our server, move all of your data over here and do everything on our server. It's a big switch. We could say to them, maybe it's a, less of a big switch, we could say, hey, install this local Docker container. And instead of running through your usual Python system installation with all your packages, come to our Docker container. It's definitely a less big switch than going on a server, but still it kind of takes them out of the context of their own workflow, which is where we're kind of trying to solve problems. And so we kind of decided that fighting these installation issues is actually part of the battle and actually getting to the users. I would say, in fairness, that this Docker stuff that you just mentioned, definitely something that's uh, interesting and you know worth following up on for us, just because some people's systems are so messed up that you know there's no saving them. Um, but uh, I think as much as we can actually fit into just the user's normal workflow, that's definitely our, our goal. Right. Yeah, that makes a total sense because I would imagine most of these folks, or at least a large percentage, right? They're not really experts with Docker. They're just like, hey, I just want to run this thing and work inside of it. Like, they just want to click buttons and be done. No, exactly. They want to they want to launch Jupyter Lab exactly how they normally would launch Jupyter Lab and just get a spreadsheet within their workflow. Whereas with Docker, they might have to do X, Y, and Z of port forwarding, et cetera, et cetera, to get the system to work how they how they want it to. Which I don't know about you, but it's not messing with Docker containers is not my favorite my favorite time in my life. <laughs> right. So yeah, maybe we can focus then on how you've tried to overcome or have overcome this challenge already. Like, what does it look like to create an installer that actually works on all the distros and operating systems that you support? That is a great question. This is something that we're kind of working through currently. Um, I think that there's a couple of things here. So the first thing is to note that the one thing that we can leverage here is that pretty much everybody that we're kind of working with currently, or at least most people, um, do have local Python installations. So practically what that means is that they we, we assume that they can pip install some package. Um, and once we get there, then there's actually a lot of flexibility that we have in terms of kind of distributing a Python package that effectively acts as an installer. So the user essentially installs a, a pip package. Let's say that's called the Mito installer package. And if they were to then run, you know, pip, or, or sorry, Python dash M Mito installer install. So essentially running, running a script that's included in that Mito installer package that is where we can effectively do the hard work of figuring out and excuse my language here, but what the hell went wrong with this person's uh, kind of Python setup <laughs> and how can we put them in a state where they're, they're good to go. A, they're good to use Mito, but also B, we don't kind of change the wackiness that is uh, essentially how can we meet them where they are with their Python installation. So to give you some like practical examples of, of what this kind of looks like, for example, um, lots of users use Anaconda, for example, but have different virtual environments within Anaconda that they use. And they're not sure most of the time which which environments have which packages in them. So they'll launch Jupyter from one, but they'll you know do all their scripting in a different language from another. And they're not sure about the difference between the two of them. And so we'll, in that script, in our installer script, we'll essentially have to figure out you know where are they and uh, how can we actually bring Mito to that virtual environment versus a different one, just as like one practical example. Yeah, that sounds very fun. And by fun, I mean opposite of fun. <laughs> now, is that installer script just a pure Python script that you've written? And it's part of the pip package? Yes. Yeah, currently. Currently. And I'll, I'll say, you know, full full disclosure, um, if any of your lovely listeners have, you know, better thoughts on how to do this, this is currently a work in progress for us. 
I think previously the way that we were kind of solving this problem of installation issues was not a technical approach. We were just hopping on calls with people and looking at their terminal and helping them work through it. Um, it's not super scalable and it doesn't really work for everyone because not everyone wants to hop on a call. But, uh, you know, if anyone has uh, in the audience has better thoughts or a better approach, we definitely would love to hear them. So feel free to reach out. Right. Yeah, no, I think it's a good idea, right? It's like, who wrote that one article about, like, you don't need to operate at Google scale, you know, if you're not Google. So just go hopping on a call with a couple of people once in a while seems like a reasonable solution early on. Totally. And I think that generally that describes a lot of our processes. Um, it, it's really interesting, I think. Um, and I'm definitely going to circle back and listen to a lot more of the the kind of podcasts you have with smaller engineering orgs. But it's it's interesting. Definitely as a developer, my desire is to automate everything, you know, at the first go. But often I have to restrain myself and say, you know, let's attempt this installation process by hand a bunch of times first and see how it goes. And then we'll learn something. And then from that, we can automate those insights versus just taking a swing when I don't even know if someone's throwing a ball at me, um, which is my intuition to do. And it's what I kind of want to do, but it's not always the best call. Right. Yeah, that's very well put. And I would tackle it the same way, basically. Now, as for this PIP package, like once it's installed, is that just the whole purpose of that installer thing that the PIP installed? Like at that point, are they just launching like a double clicking an icon on their desktop or something? Like how does this get running on their end? Yes. So uh, to, to recap again, how JupyterLab works. So JupyterLab is a, um, it's essentially a Python backend um, that slaps, it has a web server in front of it. And then a front end that most users kind of interact with through their browser that allows them to kind of see their notebooks and write code and, and view outputs, et cetera. Users launch these in different ways. Um, so there's kind of two main ways that users launch JupyterLab, um, which is when I say launch JupyterLab, I mean both the backend Python process as well as the front end for viewing their notebooks and looking at them. The first way and kind of the main way is through something called Anaconda Navigator, which is effectively just, yeah, they double click an, app uh, an application on their desktop as, as one normally would and it effectively opens JupyterLab. Um, the other way is that users type the command Jupyter space lab into some terminal that they have on their computer and that usually will launch it as well. So those are the kind of two main ways that users actually initiate the launch of the JupyterLab application. And as I mentioned, kind of we're, a, we're an extension to JupyterLab and we wanted to slot in, you know, completely normally. So for users who have might have installed, as soon as they launch Jupyter as they normally do, then, then they can just write kind of Python code that will actually get them to this spreadsheet. Very cool. So yeah, maybe we can talk a little bit about the extension itself. Do you want to go over how one creates a JupyterLab extension from scratch? Does it need to be all Python code? Like, yeah, let's hear the story about that one. That's a great question. And I would say that this is, um, this is, I think was kind of the hardest part of getting off the ground for us was figuring out what that, what that is, what does it mean to write a JupyterLab extension and you know, what are our constraints and what are our possibilities? Um, neither of us had any previous experience writing JupyterLab extensions, so we kind of figured it out as we went. But high level, the way to think about JupyterLab extensions is the following. There's kind of two types of JupyterLab extensions. There's extensions that are just functional changes to the front end. Um, maybe not even functional changes, just changes to the front end. So this is you can kind of think of as a pure JavaScript or CSS extension. Um, an example might be a dark mode or something that makes all the buttons look like cats or something that changes the language of your Python code into something wacky. I don't know. You can imagine just kind of purely JavaScript front-end based changes. That is a something that we would call a pure front-end extension to JupyterLab. There's another type of extension to JupyterLab, and this is the type of extension that we are, where on top of extending the front-end, you also do something to extend the Python kernel in the back-end. So let me justify why that might be interesting. Imagine that you want to write an extension, for example, in our case, that allows users to in the front end, click buttons, and in the back end, interpret those button clicks as some data transformation. So adding a column to a data frame or filtering your data set in some way. If you want to do that, you need some Python code on the back end that actually does the computation and reports the results back to the front end, just like kind of any other API. And so in our case, we realized pretty early on what we needed here was a front end extension that would actually show a user a spreadsheet and allow them to kind of you know, see their data and interact with their data and, and transform their data as they would in a spreadsheet. But actually also we needed this kind of Python backend that sat in the Python kernel and interpreted the commands that were coming in from the front end uh, spreadsheet and actually make those transformations to that data and then report it back to the front end as well. And so high level, that's kind of the architecture that our, our, uh, our extension has. There's a front end spreadsheet and then there's a backend kind of API processing thing that actually handles the uh, transformations as they occur. 
Ah, interesting. So from like the extension point of view, when you're developing it, are you basically just creating like, you know, API endpoints that JupyterLab then figures out like, okay, I'm going to make these available that you can call from the front end? You know, that would be super sweet. Uh, unfortunately, the answer is no. Um, what's really interesting about this is that we kind of, because we're a JupyterLab extension, we inherited the Jupyter communication model. I don't know how to describe it other than it's like a single threaded messaging queue where you can like effectively dump messages into a queue and then on the other end get those messages out of a queue um, so in the front end we can add a message to a queue and in the back end we can pick that message off the queue but it doesn't look like a traditional kind of web api and so we've kind of had to put a layer of abstraction on top of that communication interface to get to a point where we can effectively it looks like making an api call it at this point for us but uh it's been some work to get there because we're kind of in the constraints of jupiter's messaging interface okay that makes total sense yeah so there's not something like I don't know, like a Geunicorn web server running. It's just their whatever custom message broker to handle all that stuff. Exactly. Yeah, that's exactly right. Okay. So for this extension itself, is this pure Python code then, or do you have like C extensions being used as well or no? No, it's, so we have pure Python on the back end. Um, just, you know, we didn't want to complicate our distribution even more. Um, and uh, it's a TypeScript React code base on the front end. Nice. Yeah, earlier when you were talking about the installation, I was like, ah, oh, I wonder if they have any C extensions that need to be installed. Like, good luck with that. Like, <laughs> it's going to be hard. Yeah, yeah. You know, we're fighting the battles one by one. One one day we will possibly, maybe for speed or something. But, uh, you know, we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. I uh, I don't envy myself in the future. Right. So for building the extension, the backend component of it, are there some Python packages that you pulled into the project to make it easier to work with, you know, creating your own custom Excel sheet? Because it sounds like that's sort of probably not the easiest thing to build. No, absolutely. Yeah. And I, I think, um, so I'll, great question. I'll take it in parts. I think the first thing just to respond to, it's probably not that easy to build. So I think there's one thing I want to highlight here, which is that, you know, Excel is a sprawling, massive application. And if we're making some claim about how we're going to offer you a spreadsheet, we really have to be able to provide a lot of functionality right off the bat um, to kind of make it useful to users as users have a variety of workflows that they want to do in spreadsheets. Right. And so you're absolutely right that there's a lot to replicate. And so really we leaned on, you know, what exists as much as we possibly could. The biggest thing here, um, the kind of main uh, Python data science library you've probably heard of, it's called pandas. Do not reinvent the wheel. We effectively work very naturally with pandas. A spreadsheet effectively is a data frame. It's just a big rectangular table. And so the transformations that we actually kind of let you apply on the back end are just, um, we essentially just provide a visual front end for kind of pandas transformations that exist. And that I would say that would be the main kind of dependency that we have in our project, uh, at least on the back end, is we're really just kind of, uh, in one way, we're really just a visual front end for pandas. Hmm. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, so then the React setup on the front end is more like, well, making it look nice and filtering and, you know, sorting columns and stuff like that. Yeah, exactly. The React front end is where we actually kind of define the user interface that looks like a spreadsheet and, and really take these operations that, you know, sometimes in pandas, it's like, I don't know if you've ever tried to create a pivot table in pandas, but it's um, it's hellish. It's it's quite unpleasant. The the syntax is very, very unusable. And we kind of reinterpret that in the context of a spreadsheet and say, here's a really nice drop down that you can just click, you know, which rows you want, which columns you want, and how you want to aggregate your values. And then it generates a pivot table for you kind of in real time in the front end while also generating that code. Um, so the front end is kind of where all the hard UI work is done. And actually, that actually allows the users to use this functionality that they've come to expect from their spreadsheets. Nice. Yeah, no, I haven't done that personally, but I have worked with pivot tables before. And yeah, as much automation as possible is very, uh, very welcome. So yeah, so for the front end then, well, I have multiple questions, but I guess let's start with the most basic thing is if this is a React application, you mentioned writing it in TypeScript, do you then do some compile process during dev to ship the end result, like the bundled assets into the extension or like how does that end up working? So this is a really, really, really great question. Um, so there's two kind of steps here. The first one is the kind of the compilation that we do from TypeScript just to kind of pure JS um, and CS, CSS. Um, and this happens before we distribute the Python package. We essentially compile our TypeScript down to JavaScript. We bundle it up within the Python package itself and we ship that whole thing out essentially to PyPy. It's a Python package, it has Python code in it, and also it has a folder that contains all of our JavaScript and CSS assets. Now, when the user actually receives that Python package, they can't just normally pip install it. And this is another reason that I kind of left out before that that installation actually gets tricky. The first thing they do is they download this Python package. The next thing they actually have to do is make sure that this JavaScript and CSS gets effectively built into JupyterLab. So essentially what we have to do is we can't just take these 
JavaScript and CSS files, unfortunately, and put them in the right place, we actually have to do a full rebuild of JupyterLab after moving these files to the right place. And so there's kind of two build steps that occur. There's this build where we take our TypeScript and we turn it into JavaScript. Um, and then there's this build step where the user takes that JavaScript and actually rebuilds their JupyterLab locally to include the JavaScript that uh, that is Mito, that makes up the Mito front end. Mm. Yeah, that sounds, uh, I mean, it's it's complicated sort of because it needs to be that, but it's like you're compiling stuff on the back end and also on the front end where the front end is like the client end user. Exactly. And it's tricky for a bunch of reasons. I mean, obviously, if we're doing it on the back end, okay, it makes maybe deployment for us just a little bit slower. But for users, practically what it means is that, um, on, you know, they need to have Node installed because they need to be able to essentially, you know, run some, some Node packages and run some Node code to rebuild this thing in the first place. So it can be actually a pretty laborious process to kind of get that working. So now the problem went from just needing to figure out Python, it's also getting a node environment. <laughs> it's it's the worst of both worlds, for sure. And the one thing I will highlight here is that this this is a problem with kind of all JupyterLab extensions generally. Um, and so um, the big change that JupyterLab actually just released a new version. JupyterLab, by the way, I should just call them out. You know, we inherit so much from them. They're an amazing, amazing open source project that has, um, you know, hundreds of developers that have contributed, but really kind of just a couple core developers that really do an amazing job. And uh, one of the things that they did in the kind of new main version of JupyterLab, bumping from JupyterLab 2.0, which was in use from like 2019 or something till this year, uh, to the new version that came out this year, JupyterLab 3.0, is that they removed this, this uh, requirement for Node. And they actually now allow you to kind of do a bunch more work uh, when, you, you know, in the step where I said where we compile our TypeScript to JS and then put it in our Python package, you can effectively do more work there that makes it easier for the user to just kind of take these files and slot them right into their place and not have to rebuild. And so there's definitely work going on both on our end, but also on JupyterLab's end to kind of make this process easier for users. Oh man, on a scale of one to 10, like how happy does that make you? Incredibly happy. I will say though, you know, this gets into one of the really interesting areas, which I'm sure we'll touch on here, which is what does it mean to upgrade a package? And what does it mean to, up, to opt in to upgrading a package? Because, you know, the one real benefit that we kind of feel we lose out on by moving away from this server model, you know, the SaaS orthodoxy, let's say, is that, you know, we can't push updates ourselves. We have to kind of trust our users that if they want the updates, they're going to go download them. And, you know, there's a bunch of trade-offs there, some positive ones, some negative ones uh, that we can definitely get into because it's a really interesting conversation. But generally, it's it makes me very happy. But also, I know it's going to be two, three years before everybody's on JupyterLab 3. So we still have to fight the, the node battles, unfortunately. Yeah, no, that totally makes sense. I forgot all about having to wait for folks to update from two to three because, you know, I don't use it personally, but I know like big major updates definitely take some time. For sure. But you, you definitely brought up something that made me think otherwise of how I thought this may have worked. So with the 3.0 upgrade, if you just build a new, basically a new extension, right? Like version 1.1 instead of, you know, 1.0, do they just not then upgrade their extension and they're done with the new 3.0 setup? Like they're still going to have to like, somehow manage updating their front end separately? No, they would update. So I'm not sure exactly what you're asking, but let me let me try and piece it apart. So effectively, there's two things that they have to do to if they wanted to move to JupyterLab 3. They would have to both upgrade their JupyterLab locally, and they would have to upgrade our extension to kind of get our new package version. Unfortunately, as an application developer, like, sorry, as an extension developer for JupyterLab, we actually have to do some work as well to kind of um, make sure our application works on JupyterLab 3 as well. So there actually is kind of an upgrading part of that process that makes sure that that it'll work um, for the user on their end. Okay, yeah, that totally clarifies it. Yeah, when you said multiple like things you need to do, it's like literally getting the notebook to 3.0 is like considered one thing. Got yeah, it. no, definitely. And, and I think for a lot of users, it can actually be a tricky process, right? Because as I mentioned, you also have to upgrade your extensions and not all the extensions support 3 yet. And so there's kind of this process here where everyone's waiting to go to 3 until the extensions are on 3 and the extension developers speaking as one um, maybe are slowly only supporting 3 because not everyone's there yet. And so it's this kind of weird cat and mouse standoffish game where we're, who's going to go first? Right. Now, for bundling up the front end, do you just run all like Webpack or something locally to create whatever assets needs to be created in that one folder? Yep, yep, all web all Webpack run locally. Um, actually, so so you can run Webpack locally. Our deployment process, which I can describe in more detail, but effectively the main usage of cloud software generally that we have within our company is we kind of use GitHub Actions for most of everything we do. Um, we have a CI. Uh, almost CD uh, kind of pipeline that we actually use to, to run our deploy scripts. Okay. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because we have like multiple deployment topics to talk about. It's like distributing this one extension package and then maybe also talking about 
like the Kubernetes setup for now that, you know, maybe phased out in the future, but still currently exists. Maybe we can start with that GitHub action setup. Like you say mostly automated, almost CD. Like what does the process look like to go from you are ready to ship a new version because you built some features in to getting that extension available that folks can download? Absolutely. So effectively what happens is we create a feature branch on GitHub that corresponds to a specific piece of functionality. Um, on that feature branch, we have uh, obviously a manual review process. Just I'm going to put my word in for manual code review. It's the one proven way to reduce software bugs. Definitely do it. In any case, we uh, kind of obviously manually review, um, fix up bugs, et cetera. But we also have kind of continuous integration tests that run directly against that branch. So the first thing I'll say here is that we have Python tests that kind of test the back end of our system just in pure Python, just using PyTest. But also, because we're a JupyterLab extension, it's really hard to test the kind of the full scale functionality um, of our application without also running a JupyterLab instance. So what we actually have to do, unfortunately, is run effectively a full browser and run full browser tests uh, against our application to make sure that everything's working. And so we actually have that built into our kind of continuous integration pipeline. Um, once those tests are passing, the review is addressed, we merge that feature branch into our development branch or our, our, let's say our main branch here. And uh, once, as soon as a feature is merged, it's automatically deployed to a staging environment where we can kind of install the package and use this version of the MitoSheet package in our own JupyterLab and make sure that kind of everything works there properly. Once we're comfortable with that, um, and this usually happens about five times a week, we're currently averaging about five deploys a week, um, we can then click one button. It's just a single button click, but it's not completely automated um, to actually make a deploy of that package to production effectively and make sure that all our users are aware of that kind of new update. Nice. Yeah, that does sound basically fully automated, but you do need that little manual check at the end just to make sure it's all good. Yeah, which you know we're moving away from eventually, but uh, it's there for now. Right. When it comes to setting up that full browser environment during your test run, do you use a third-party service for that? Like, which one do you use? So we use um, a GitHub Action, and within a GitHub Action, we use something called Test Cafe, um, which is essentially it's a node package, I believe, that just allows you to run browser tests uh, locally on your machine or within the context of continuous integration. It's okay. We don't use a third-party service, but I wonder if we maybe should just because the kind of the process of keeping these tests up to date. I guess I'll say I spend more time maintaining CSS selectors for our front-end tests than I would like, and I think that's probably the biggest bottleneck in our current kind of deployment pipeline. You know, if it was possible for us to kind of reasonably test our React components um, and you know do all that without having to spin up a full browser, we definitely would. But as we kind of mentioned earlier, you know, a main piece of our application rests on, for example, this Jupyter Lab messaging infrastructure. And simulating that um, or even mocking that is just a little bit too tricky to to make the tests actually you know convince us of anything in that case. Yeah, no, dealing with CSS selectors and tests are definitely uh, the opposite of fun because, yeah, sometimes you just need to make your test like that for it to work. Now, when it comes to this whole test suite running on GitHub Actions, like w what is a time frame to go from, you know, you just push the code to it's available, like, you know, hopefully all the tests pass? That is a great question. Um, it's something that's much so. I'll actually I'll give you a little bit of historical context and not just a snapshot of where we are currently. Where we are currently can definitely improve, but it's it's the best it's ever been. Previously, the way we used to do deployment was we didn't have um, automated tests for our front end, just for our back end. We only had automated tests for our back end. So we would merge into our kind of main branch. After we merge into our main branch, we would collect the entire company together, everyone working on the project, and we would kind of go through a two to three hour manual testing process where we would test all the various pieces of functionality through a set of handwritten tests that we kind of manually applied and then checked. And then we would you know, fix up any bugs that we found before eventually deploying. We eventually decided that this was obviously terrible. This was this is kind of right in the same vein as uh, you know, manually working people through the installation process. We did it manually for a while and then we realized it you know, didn't really work for everything that we wanted to do and you know, the scale we wanted to be at. So um, we moved to these kind of automated tests these automated tests, unfortunately, take about an hour to run, but notably all of that is downtime for us, so we can be off working on other stuff. So in terms of delay from merging the feature into actual deployment, it's usually about three to five hours. We usually merge the features in, mess around, do some other stuff in the meantime. You know, There's lots of work to be done. And uh, eventually when we get back to it, check that these automated tests have completed and work okay. Uh, usually we just do one or two kind of sanity checks on our kind of the staging version of the package before actually making the deployment. So usually that takes about five hours from uh, the feature being merged to the feature being deployed, uh, but most of that is downtime for us. 
Right. That's not too bad if it's mostly just waiting for the machine to do its work. Before you cut a final release, do you then go and look at it in multiple browsers on your own, like Firefox and Chrome and Safari and Edge and all those, or no? Yeah, so we luckily, what we do is we run our tests on Windows. It just so happens that Test Cafe uh, on GitHub Actions only works on Windows. So we, we run the tests on Windows, um, I think specifically on Chrome, and we develop locally on Safari and Firefox. So usually we don't do much explicit browser, browser testing afterwards. I think another big thing here is not writing particularly wacky CSS, just kind of keeping things super sane and super simple and super sensible. Um, we don't worry about browser compatibility too much at that point. Right. And then all the TypeScript and any fancy JavaScript that you're writing just gets compiled down to like, I guess, ES5 JavaScript from Webpack, right? Yeah, exactly. So we don't have to worry about that. Thank God. <laughs> right. Yeah, that would be a whole nother can of worms to uh, deal with. <laughs> Even more dependency problem. Yeah. So this front end that you're building, were there any interesting packages that you used to help create a visual representation of a spreadsheet? Yes. Um, yeah. So we actually use a package. So we did a bunch of looking into kind of what are the best JavaScript grids are interested, obviously, in a super snappy spreadsheet uh, through the browser. And so uh, we ended up settling on a variety of packages that could be applicable. Um, there's something called rows and columns. There's something called AG Grid. A lot of them have community versions. But we um, use a package called AG Grid. Effectively, what it is, is it's a kind of, it's the base of the spreadsheet. So it'll essentially display columns and have cells in there and allow you to click on them, for example. Um, and this kind of does a lot of the heavy lifting of the kind of core of our application. Um, and it's super snappy for the amount of data that we often throw at it. Right. Do you have an example of what type of data you throw at it? Like how many rows or whatever? Yeah. So initially, so we're obviously, we're working with Python data frames. So often users will show up somewhere between 5,000 rows and five columns to, you know, 5 million rows and 150 columns. Obviously the browser doesn't really handle a million, a million, uh, let's say, 100 million elements super well. And so at that point, we kind of have to restrict and only show a piece of the data in the front end. But on the order of a couple hundred thousand, a million elements, the browser kind of does super well. And uh, AG Grid, definitely no complaints there. It's super snappy. Well, that's crazy to think at how good browsers are becoming with the hardware that we have because, you know, a couple million or like 500,000 nodes in the DOM or whatever, that's a lot of nodes. And uh, it's good to see that it's actually running pretty nicely. Yeah, it's quite amazing, really. Uh, really, we were honestly super impressed with with AG Grid's performance. And I think that's their kind of main focus as a as a kind of spreadsheet um, package, let's say. Uh, definitely, though, there are problems with it. We run into problems. I think users with lots of columns, um, they're cached differently in AG Grid than lots of rows. And so, you know, it might crash your browser tab if you're not careful. And so we definitely are kind of actively looking into, you know, how can we use you know, different browser APIs, et cetera, to kind of improve this process for ourselves, potentially even developing our own kind of core row and column model. Um, for example, maybe using the HTML canvas or something. Um, definitely something that's interesting to us, but, you know, we're fighting enough, we're putting out enough fires currently, and so we're not fighting that battle right now. Right. And I hate to throw around terms like telemetry or logging and stuff like that, because some people hear that and they get like alarm bells, like, hey, you're phoning home, which I definitely do myself personally, but do you have any tooling in place to help like figure out what types of pages are causing slowdowns for clients or no? Yeah, it's a great question. So um, our logging story is an interesting one. Obviously, I mentioned that our users are interested in the local version of our application because they don't want to put their data on a server. And so we definitely you know, do our, our utmost to kind of respect that user wish of no, none of your private data will ever leave your computer. Uh, all of the logging that we do is on the order of a you know, user clicked a button or user did an action or user did a filter. Uh, and we avoid logging any data that is private user data. So all of our logging is on the order of like user actions and none of it is on the user data. Right. So it's just like at most like, okay, like 700 million rows and like 42 columns or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And we even avoid metadata about the user's data frames. Um, we essentially just so to, to answer your question, I guess, we wouldn't be super well equipped to, to detect a page slowdown in the case that the user put in 100 million rows and 100 million columns, but it's a trade-off that we effectively make just to avoid kind of learning anything about the user's data, um, which is for us kind of an utmost priority. Right. So when it comes to this uh, logging data, then how does it get from their local notebook to somewhere where you can take a look at that? Great question. Um, so we kind of use two services that help us do this. The first one is Segment, which I'm sure you've heard of. It's essentially a data connection pass-through layer where you can kind of uh, send logs to Segment and then use Segment to send logs anywhere else that you want. Um, and I'll, just to put in a quick pitch for Segment, it's an amazing application. I've had literally zero problems with it ever. I really, really like it. I think we're on the free tier or something, so I don't even think we pay. And honestly, it's, it's really awesome. 
and we might have gotten a startup discount or something. Uh, where do we actually send our logs though? We send them to Mixpanel. Mixpanel is our kind of main analytics hub. It's where we kind of understand, you know, how many users do we have using the tool? Um, maybe where are they running into problems? We can't detect things like, you know, is the page crashing, but we can detect lots of other problems that users often do run into. And so we do our best to kind of understand, you know, based on the limited data that we have and maintaining user privacy in the best possible way, you know, how can we improve our application and kind of offer users um, things that they want. And, you know, within this, we include all sorts of things like we have, for example, in-app feedback where users can give us feedback, point out problems, point out bugs, request features, et cetera. And that all kind of happens within Mixpanel as well. Very cool. So you can see the results of them filling out the form straight into Mixpanel? Yeah, exactly. And one big uh, in-app feedback dashboard. Nice. Do you keep that open in like a second monitor or like, a, you know, accessible on your day to day? Yes, we do our best to. So our, our kind of daily check-in as a team, we always start by kind of looking at the dashboards. But I would say, you know, having a big computer on the on the wall that just constantly display that would definitely be super awesome. And I'm sure good for uh, staying on track and staying focused. Right. Now, you did mention that besides, you know, actual errors or performance-related issues, users do have errors once in a while. Do you want to give a couple of examples of like what types of things they run into? That's a great question. So I'll, I'll, I'll classify them into kind of two interesting categories. And uh, in the latter category, I'll actually make a, a plea to Mixpanel. But so the first type of category that users run into is, is something on the order of user clicked a, bu a button and it didn't have the effect that they intended. So an example of this might be, um, so we have an example uh, is emerging data sets. So the user might click the merge button. And when they click the merge button, hypothetically, that, that uh, should open a interface that allows them to merge two data sets together. Now let's imagine, for example, that the user only has one data set, right? So in the case that they click the merge modal, it opens the merge modal and the merge modal, just because it's badly programmed, causes the sheet to crash, for example. What we might be able to observe is in, in any case that the user has one data frame and they click the merge modal, it causes the sheet to crash. This is something that's actually visible to us in the logs and we can kind of figure out by, um, through kind of a use of both the error messages that we generate on the actual client's machine, but also through the dashboards and the logging that we look at on our end and actually kind of do manual work to figure that out. So that's kind of a, a very specific event that allows us to see, ah, here's a problem, what is it? How can we kind of fix it? The other type of kind of error that we encounter through our logs is let's say a higher order error. And this is where we see a user kind of performing a behavior that we would consider, I don't wanna say pathological, but you know, not the correct way of doing things. So imagine a user has hundred columns and they wanna apply the same filter to all hundred columns. Well, we could see practically that what the user does is they go through and they apply a filter to 100 columns in a row. And we might say to ourselves, ah, very interesting behavior. You know, this isn't necessarily a bug, but it's definitely not how we want people interacting with our application. And uh, so functionally, what we can do, for example, is add a bulk filter option to the application itself. And so there's kind of multiple different types of bugs and, and unexpected behavior that we encounter through our logging, and we respond to them differently. In the first one, we usually just fix them because, you know, it's never nice to have your sheet crash. And the second one, we, you know, do much more spec work to kind of understand, you know, what are users doing and why are they doing it? And how can we kind of improve our application to make sure that they have a better time doing this in the future? Yeah, that's very cool to see that you can get those type of details. Like you can sort of get feature requests out of, you know, weird situations happening in the UI. Yeah, exactly. And I, I think that, you know, Mixpanel is really well suited to the first type of bug. It, you know, really has a lot of things helping you dig in on error messages and, you know, break down your events by their different parameters, et cetera. But the latter type of work, which is this kind of higher order thinking about the user's workflow and saying to ourselves, you know, how can we improve this workflow, you know, just based on what we see, which is really not much. It's obviously no private user data, but how can we improve this workflow? It is a, at least for us currently, a pretty manual process that involves us actually literally looking at the logs that we generate and, and thinking about them and just saying, you know, what can we do better? Right. So here's, uh, at least to me, what might be considered an interesting question, because I don't think it's possible to get this information, but can you get the current memory usage of the instance of the Jupyter, Jupyter Notebook running to determine like, hey, I don't know, we're noticing a crash when it gets to this point or whatever. Like basically a way for you to instruct the user that, by the way, you're trying to load so much that you need more RAM actually. So it's a great question. I think there's two ways I would answer this. The first one is that just generally getting memory usage and kind of doing memory profiling within the app is definitely something that we've been interested in. Um, it's A, hard to do, and also B, hard to do in a privacy-preserving way. So we don't have it currently, but you know, as we kind of allow the user to apply transformations, we definitely don't want to use all the memory on their machine. And so this sort of logging is definitely... This let's say this sort of metric is definitely interesting to us, although I'm, I'm not sure how gettable it is. But the other thing that I would say is that luckily what we 
you know, since we're in a Python environment, we get a lot of kind of Python system errors for free. So for example, if the user performs an action and the action causes an out of memory error, Python will generate that out of memory error. And so, you know, we can catch that and then report, for example, the mix panel, hey, there was an out of memory error here on this button click, you know, without reporting anything about the user data. And so um, we don't have super advanced metrics on, you know, what causes memory blowups, et cetera. But in the worst kind of pathological cases, we are we can kind of get notified, oh, you know, something went wrong here in our application. And, and here's a kind of inkling of how you might go about fixing it. Uh, very cool. Yeah, I forgot for a second that, hey, you're in the browser, but you're actually running Python in there. So you get all that good stuff. So maybe now we can switch gears a little bit and talk about your deployment setup of the Kubernetes cluster, if you don't mind. Yes, please. Okay, so we're going to have to sort of, you know, we don't need to rush it through, but we can't just go into crazy detail about everything. Otherwise, we shall, we'll just become too long for this episode. But yeah, I would love to hear about your managed solution of all this and like how this is set up. I guess before we even go into the Kubernetes setup, like which backend have you used to create the hosting service itself. So we use, yeah, so we use um, AWS EKS, which is Amazon's Elastic Container Service. Um, and I think actually Elastic Kubernetes Service, possibly. I forget the acronyms, but, um, and you'll have to excuse me in terms of talking about this. We set this up three months ago and it's been running perfectly since. And so I might be a little bit rusty on the details, but uh, generally we, everything we do is on AWS um, from a hosting perspective. Okay. So when it comes to that Kubernetes cluster, then do you run a specific workload on that? Like, have you written a custom web application that you run in the cluster? Yeah, it's a great question. So luckily, um, and this is another reason that going with the JupyterLab extension approach was so lovely. Luckily, there is a open source package called Jupyter Hub, uh, and Jupyter Hub is effectively a Kubernetes prepackaged deployment, a bunch of Helm scripts, etc. Um, that actually describe a kind of deployment of a Kubernetes cluster that runs. Uh, different JupyterLab instances uh, and users. It, for example, contains uh, primitives that allow you to define authentication, et cetera, that allows users to sign in. Once they sign in, they get a new Docker container um, that actually contains a running JupyterLab instance within it. So we very luckily, I think, inherited essentially a almost complete configuration of a system without really having to do much work ourselves to, to figure out how to do that, especially because, you know, um, my Docker experience is very limited and my Kubernetes experience was effectively zero before I, I did any of this stuff. Right. And here you are three months ago, put it up and it's still running great. Yeah. Nice I can't complain. Too. I can't complain. It's quite nice. Yeah. So it sounds like, I don't know, maybe I'm missing one little detail here, but does someone first need to sign up on your site with some type of credentials, let's just say email and password for now. And then you go ahead and create one of these Jupyter Hub instances with that account for them? Yes, exactly. So if the user was to use essentially our, it's at app.trymito.io. Any user who wants to go check it out can, but effectively what you can do is you can essentially authenticate with your email, with Gmail currently. Um, and it will essentially, once you authenticate, it will spin up a new instance for you and just put you in your own kind of private container and, and let you uh, have a full JupyterLab instance within that. Very cool. Is that something you offer for free or is there like a paywall behind that for Stripe or maybe Braintree or PayPal or something? So currently we're entirely free. Um, it's limited capacity. And so, you know, we don't pay much for this server. It's, it's, uh, or at least for the service, it's quite small and we've got some AWS credit, but uh, currently it's all free. And uh, if you want to check it out, this is a call to the users or the listeners of your podcast, I'll say, please feel free to. Uh, it's uh, not behind a paywall currently. No. Well, it's interesting because, you know, I don't have the listenership where, you know, suddenly there's going to be like a hundred thousand people uh, trying to try it out. But, uh, and again, like, I'm not trying to pick apart like your strategy here, but how do you plan to go about that in the future? Well, you did mention you want to phase it out, but yeah, I, I would imagine it's not sustainable to run that for free, like a hosted cluster. It's a really interesting question. I think this is another area where potentially we disagree with the, this, the SaaS kind of orthodoxy, which I keep referring to as like a collective body of knowledge. And I'm, I'm sure you know what I mean, but I think for us, really the primary goal right now and kind of our stage of our company and and you know i'll say why we're actually running in production in the first place is because we're really trying to prove to ourselves that we're solving a, a big pain point and for us we realize that um there's a bunch of infrastructure that we could build that in the long term would probably help us so an example of this is you know user accounts for example or payment infrastructure or you know automated email infrastructure etc but every moment we spend working on that, at least for us, we find is actually uh, to the detriment of the product, which is really, we think, where most of our work needs to be done currently. So I totally hear you. And I think you're absolutely right in the long term. You know, running a server that anyone can access and, you know, do their data science on is definitely not sustainable. Um, but, you know, kind of at our, 
our current stage. It's the price we're willing to pay to be able to kind of spend our time, you know, working on the product. Right. And hopefully by the time Jupyter Lab there is at 3L, then maybe that hosting environment will just go away. No, that's exactly the goal, right? As soon as, soon as we don't have to fight people's node <laughs> installation also, then, you know, we're, I think we're ready to shut the server down. Although I will say there definitely are users who kind of prefer the server. It's, it's way the minority. It's, you know, on the order of two to 5% or something. Right. And I'm not an expert with that system, but I mean, like if they wanted to run it remotely on some server, couldn't they just set up Jupyter Hub like on a digital ocean box or, you know, wherever they want to go? Absolutely. Yeah. And this is kind of another benefit of kind of just the local, local first kind of approach that we've taken here and kind of that we started with. In some ways, you can think about what we did as starting with on-prem in some ways rather than starting with a server. Um, what's really nice is that, you know, for the folks that we talk to in enterprise, uh, you know, of which there are a couple companies that are using Mido, not a ton, but a, a couple, um, it's really easy for them to get kind of started with the product. They install it on their JupyterHub instance that they're often running anyways, and it's kind of a super easy process for them to do so. Yeah, it sounds like a, definitely a smart move. Like I would for sure. I like that. Yeah, it's a nice benefit for the uh, the local first approach that we kind of realized once we got into it. And, uh, you know, companies reached out to us and said, hey, we're really interested in trying this. And we said, great, here's the command you have to run. And they said, wait, what? You mean I don't have to set up a whole server in my uh, cluster? And we were like, no, just uh, run this command on your existing Jupyter Hub instance. Nice. Now, by the way, speaking about the local installs, you know, on Windows, it's kind of like you're almost dealing with two different operating systems, right? You have Windows just running standard Windows, like typical Windows, but then you also have, you know, WSL2 sitting inside of there. Does your installer work in WSL2? That's a great question. I So I would say I'm, I'm a recent kind of Windows user. I didn't touch a Windows machine until three months ago when we started actually installing on Windows. So I'm actually, I'm not even educated on the differences between the two of them. And uh, I guess my answer would probably be, you know, we do our best to work everywhere. But if, we, uh, if we're not working in one of those places, I wouldn't be surprised. Right. Yeah, no, WSL2 is just a way for you to run uh, Linux inside of Windows. So you can pick a distro that you'd like, like Ubuntu, Debian, whatever you want. And then you can kind of just follow like native Linux installation steps on there. Super cool. Yeah, I, I would assume we would work then. Uh, we do. I would say Linux is the place where we have usually the least problems in terms of installation. So Right. I only thought about it because it's like right now, currently, as of this recording, to get graphical apps to run inside of that WSL2 still requires some manual steps. It's not like built into WSL2. But I mean, if you're just running basically like a Jupyter command that exposes a URL endpoint, they can still just go to that in their browser in Windows, like regular Windows, and check it out. Like, I guess that would work. Yeah, seems like it, for sure. Okay. So, you know, just wrapping things up with that Kubernetes setup, you know, it, it is a third-party app that you're basically running on the cluster, so there's not so much development behind that. But do you have, like, a like a CI flow there in case you decide that you want to change some Kubernetes configuration if you have to, or no? Yes, we do. So there is two pieces to kind of our deployment script on our GitHub action, that kind of manual deployment script where we kind of make that final button click that actually deploys a new version of kind of the MitoSheet package. Um, the first thing that it will do is it will actually kind of deploy the new version of the package to PyPy. And that's you know the part where our users actually get access to it and kind of can use those upgraded pieces of functionality. The second part of that is we actually update the, um, the Helm deployment of the Kubernetes cluster to have this kind of new version of uh, Mito as well. And so functionally what we do is we just Locally, we build a Docker container. We publish that Docker container to the Amazon container registry. And then we repoint our um, our Kubernetes cluster to actually spawn those Docker containers going forward with the kind of new version of Mito within them. Nice. As for that cluster, we didn't get a chance to go over this before, but how many uh, instances do you run in it? Or how many no like worker nodes? We have, I think by default, three worker nodes, but it auto scales to, I think, 10 in the largest case. And the reason that something like, you know, we have that auto scaler on and, and it's something we, you know, went through the time to set up is because we often do demos, for example, for like a 60 person class and MBAs at Stanford, for example, is something that we've done before. And, and, you know, then it's a sudden influx of 20, let's say 50 people signing up all at once. And we want to be able to kind of gracefully handle all those uh, user accounts. Right. What would you say the turnaround time is to go from the typical like running three worker nodes up to 10 or whatever the max is? It's quite fast. Um, I don't I, you know, I, I don't have much context on Kubernetes generally, but we use kind of the AWS auto scaling packages within our kind of deployment. Um, and it's it's quite fast, I would say, under three minutes or so to kind of scale up. Um, and Jupyter usually takes about 20 seconds to launch anyways. And so for users, it's it's. It's definitely different and it's definitely slower, but it's it's not the worst thing in the world. They just kind of get a loading screen for a little bit longer. Right. Yeah, no, it's amazing. Like Kubernetes itself, 
you know, it sort of gets a bad rap for being really complicated, and in some ways it very much is, but it's so cool to see that you're able to throw out that cluster with not a huge background in like DevOps stuff, and it's been running great for, you know, three plus months. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the biggest thing for us there is really most of the time that we spent kind of setting that up was sanity checking ourselves and making sure that, you know, from a security perspective, you know, we obviously want to be as in tip top shape. Um, and so really most of the work there in the Kubernetes cluster very much since it became, it came prepackaged, very little was actually setting it up. And most of the time was, you know, double, triple checking, um, making sure we had all our, all our defaults kind of set in the right ways and, you know, backup testing, et cetera, et cetera. And that's kind of in terms of maintenance, you know, I, I'd say we haven't touched it in three months. I haven't touched the deployment in three months, but, you know, we do backup checks once every two weeks or so. So it's, you know, that's where the work comes. So when it comes to those backup checks, I don't know, is there like a SQL database that you just dump out and store it on S3 or somewhere? Yeah, so we use a service called Valero. Uh, Valero effectively handles all of the backup for the Kubernetes cluster. Um, you essentially have to set some configs in it. It's not too bad. We essentially have daily backups that run. And effectively what it does is it takes the entire state of the Kubernetes cluster and dumps it into an S3 bucket. And so if we ever need to kind of recover the system entirely from scratch, even in a new Kubernetes cluster, we can kind of respin up the entire thing. Oh, very nice. Now, does that include also the data that your users put into the system? Or is that kind of like literally just like the constructs of the Kubernetes cluster, like deployments and services and all that? Yeah, it's a great question. It's actually both. So it to the S3 bucket itself, it backs up kind of the, the constructs of the Kubernetes system, you know, what nodes you have and what state they're in, et cetera, et cetera. For the actual user volumes, those are actually backed up as well on AWS. So Valero is kind of, I think, cloud agnostic, and it actually creates backups, snapshots, I think they're called of the EBS volumes that are the user's um, storage itself. So we actually can recover those as well, which is super sweet. Yeah, it's very nice, right? It's so cool that it's just sitting there in the cluster doing this thing every day, like a good robot, and you just sit back and uh, pay the bills on S3. Yeah, that's it. And I don't, I don't even, I'm happy to do that, you know, as long as it's uh, protecting user data, so. Yeah, absolutely. By the way, you know, you mentioned that you do have this whole cluster exposed on, what was it, the app subdomain on your main domain? Yep. So do you have that running through some AWS services like, you know, Route 53 with their like certificates, uh, whatever it's called, ACM, I think? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we use we use Route 53 for everything. Route 53 is great. I can't uh, speak its praises enough. I think that's possibly because previously we were using Google domains to manage our domains. That was just a function of the fact that my personal website was done through Google domains. And so it was kind of all we knew. Um, but let me tell you, do not use Google domains if you're doing serious development work. It really is not equipped to handle it. Um, and so we, we switched everything from Google domains, probably right when we started Mido, to um, AWS Route 53, and we kind of do everything through there, um, load balancing, et cetera. Uh, and it's, it's really quite lovely and works very well. Nice. Now, do you have any external services hooked up to check out that subdomain to make sure it's still like returning, you know, status code 200s and basically a health check? No, we don't currently do any health checks on our applications. I think probably the reason is, as I mentioned, you know, most of our users aren't on that. And so it's, uh, it's, you know, it's obviously a priority for us to make sure that the service is up, but it's, uh, it's less, um, it's less disastrous if it's down than it would be otherwise if it was, you know, all of our business versus like 2% or so. But uh, no, we don't currently use anything. Yeah, that totally makes sense. So now maybe we can talk a little bit about best tips. So do you want to go over some of your best tips for both building the extension itself and going over all the challenges that you may have faced throughout that? Yeah, absolutely. I think that we've obviously learned a lot in this process. I'm, I'm sure it's kind of visible through a lot of the things that I said um, in this actual conversation that, you know, I'm not a I'm not the world's most experienced developer. And for for us at Mido, really, this process has been, you know, getting our first kind of real production application off the ground. In terms of tips and tricks, I would say there's a couple things that we picked up along the way that I, I really do believe are kind of generalizable and I feel fairly opinionated about. I think the first one, and uh, just to make it controversial as quickly as possible, is that we really love TypeScript. Um, we used to write React without types, and now we only write React with types, and my God, it is a better process. We feel that the types kind of protect us in terms of long-term refactoring and maintenance, and they kind of serve as built-in documentation for all of the things that we're doing that has to stay up to date because our app won't build otherwise. Um, and, and I think that move, if nothing else, that move from a technical perspective was kind of you know, one of the bigger changes that we made when we started building Mido and, and really has been amazing for us. Um, I'm not sure how you feel about types, though. So maybe I just said something super controversial. No, it's totally cool. When you said controversial and all that, I was about to say, or I was thinking to myself, like, wow, this guy actually prefers like tabs instead of spaces. Like, I'm about to cancel the episode. <laughs> You're still safe. No problem. I won't comment on that one then. But uh, <laughs> I think another another tip for us that was, I think, super beneficial and something that we've kind of talked about you know, throughout this this episode is, you know, what does our deployment process look like and how can we kind of remove bottlenecks? I read a book called um, 
Project Phoenix about six months ago or so. I'm not sure if you've heard of it, but it's essentially a, a role-playing um, DevOps book that kind of walks you through the process of and, and simulates what it might be to be a DevOps person in a le legacy organization. And I think the main takeaway that I had from the book at the end of it, which was really shocking to me, was that the more you can actually increase your deployment frequency, the less of a big deal deployment will be for you and the less time it will actually end up taking. And at that point in time, we were effectively doing entirely manual deploys with huge amounts of testing. And it was just really kind of a brutal process and resulted in us only deploying new functionality once a week. It's really interesting. Focusing so much time on our deployment process has allowed us to not focus any time on our deployment process. And as I said, it does take five hours to get things out the door now, but all of that time for us is just downtime. And so we really don't have to think about it. And it really is a much better process that results in less bugs and, and less worry for us when we deploy. Yeah, that's really amazing advice. So I have heard of the book. I read probably about half of it many, many, many years ago. And I didn't stop because I didn't think it was a good book. I just, you know, how books are. Come somebody, you just put them down and forget about them. For sure. Yeah, yeah. that's such amazing advice because... I feel like that also applies to everything besides deployment, right? It's like you just keep doing things and you get better at them and eventually you, you automate the hard stuff and it just becomes easier, but only after putting in the work. No, exactly. And I, I really, and I, I think you're totally right that it's kind of a generalizable principle, but generally the thing is the thing, the more often you do something, the better you'll be able to A, figure out how to improve it, but actually B, work out the kinks. And so if something is causing you a lot of problems, it, you might say to yourself, how can I minimize how much time I'm doing this? But often... The counterintuitive approach is actually, maybe I should just spend a bunch of time on this now and fix it so I don't have to worry about it in the future. Obviously, it's easy to get pathological with that one, but uh, we've definitely found in certain cases it really helps us uh, move way quicker. Right. You found the good balance, basically. Yeah, exactly. And especially for deployment, I think. Um, another kind of best tip, and you know, this one I think is especially applicable to, to a company of our size and, and uh, I'd say of our stature. You know, We're definitely kind of really actively learning as we do this, but asking for help. I mean, this is such a huge one, but it's it's so. I guess here's what I'll say. I'm you know I I definitely I've, I've worked in software engineering and in and software research et cetera throughout college, but I'm kind of a recent college grad, and within college, there's you know you can't go to Stack Overflow and ask for help on a question or something that you've been struggling with or or you know feel great going to read documentation because often that is you know literally cheating, right? And so. Really, you have to, there's this kind of manual retraining that has to happen once you leave school and, and realize that you're, you know, writing real in-production code where it's, you know, there's an incredible number of resources. And a lot of these resources are the amazing, wonderful open source developers, for example, that work on JupyterLab. And, uh, you know, you, you can't be in, you know, posting an issue every day, but, uh, you know, if you encounter a bug that you think's in JupyterLab and you need help and clarification, you know, they would appreciate a really well done bug report. And so, you know, you can make these things beneficial for both yourself and for the people that you're, uh, you're trying to help out. Uh, these open source developers if you just ask for help in an appropriate and effective way. But I think uh, that's something that we've had to kind of internally retrain to do in a really amazing way. Yeah, that's really cool to hear about that because, yeah, it totally helps out the project as a whole, right? Like you might not be contributing code, but if you do a bug fix and they fix the bug or improve the documentation, then, you know, everyone improves in the end. No, exactly. And, I, and you know, that's really, you know, what one of the primary things we try and offer is just like, you know, when we when we encounter what we think is a bug in Jupiter, we do our very best to file the best possible bug report and, uh, you know, hopefully eventually get to the world where we're fixing those as well for them to give back. I think the last thing uh, and the last tip, and, and this is um, this is an interesting one, I think, given the context of this podcast, uh, and I'd, I'll, I'd love to hear your thoughts, but I think one of the big realizations for us is because we're doing both the design work, we're you know, fundamentally both a design and an engineering organization just due to our size, we've kind of realized that you know, the most important thing at the end of the day is the specification work that leads the implementation, right? And just as an example of this, you know, I spent a bunch of we spent a bunch of time talking about this Kubernetes cluster. What's funny is that our deployment process for our Kubernetes cluster probably took two to three x longer than our deployment process for the kind of local installation that we do. So just functionally, we put in a lot more time into our Kubernetes cluster than we did into our kind of local deployment for users as of a month ago. Um, and what's funny is that it turns out that most users want a local deployment. And uh, this is just a great example of, you know, engineering work is great. And I really enjoyed learning Kubernetes. It was super fun. You're going through that process now, and I'm sure you're enjoying it. But, uh, you know, you kind of realize that, you know, engineering work is only worth something if it gets into users' hands. And, uh, you know, it's not worth spending all this time working on things that really actually functionally doesn't impact the user because they don't care about it. And I, I think for us, that's been the biggest, one of the biggest takeaways of the past six months of working on this. Yeah, I think that is... Uh 
a very good thing to think about for sure. And, and there have been a couple episodes. I, I don't know the actual episode numbers off the top of my head where folks have brought that exact same thing up. It's like they spent a lot of time doing stuff that really wasn't what their audience wanted in the end. So yeah, it's definitely valuable to focus on what folks want. No, absolutely. It's also super like hard to do as a developer, right? Because we want to sit there and develop cool things like what we want to work on. Yeah. No, exactly. And I, I often find that the things that I should be focusing on are in many ways like the opposite of the things that seem fun to focus on. You know, if I had my way and I, you know, you told me, you know, you can spend the next three months doing whatever development you work, work you want with no guilt, I would say, ah, I'm going to work on performance optimizations for the next three months just because they're fun. But practically, users encounter performance problems like 0% of the time right now. And so really, me spending all that time to do that just because it's fun and I enjoy the development work doesn't mean it's, you know, it's best for our users. And I think that's something that I definitely have to recenter on frequently. Maybe, maybe a reason that a big uh, user dashboard on a, on a wall uh, in our house would be a, an effective tool to keep us on track. Right. I feel like a lot of folks burn out because of that, because they might think like, okay, during the day, I'll focus on what users want. But then at night or the weekends, I'll focus on like what I want. And before you know it, you're putting in like 80 hour weeks. Yeah, no, uh, yeah, it's, it's definitely kind of the development, the management process of all this development is like a whole nother thing. And I think that, you know, there's a really interesting conversation to be had there, especially in an org that's so small like us in terms of, you know, how working on what you want to work on versus what you need to work on for users actually plays into the culture of the engineering org in the first place. I, you know, and I do think it's worth saying here that, you know, definitely working 80 hours a week is, at least for me, not super sustainable long term. But uh, the flip side of that, which is only working on the things that need to be worked on and never doing the things that you enjoy also leads to burnout as well. And so there's this kind of balancing act that we have to, you know, we kind of try and play internally where we there's enjoyable work and then there's maybe more grindy work. And, you know, we make sure that we have a good balance of both and we really do get to experience the things that we want to experience and and grow and learn as developers. Because if you're not doing that, then at least for me, it's I got about a month of that before I uh, lose my mind. Yeah, that's definitely very well put. And I'm the same way. Like I can do it for a little bit, but eh, once beyond that, it just starts to get to be too much. And right now, basically, you should go register like howtoavoidburnout.com and uh, start the podcast there because <laughs> there's like 100 million things we could talk about. For sure. <laughs> so Nate, thanks a lot for coming on the Running In Production Podcast. It was really great having you on. Nick, thank you so much for having me. It was super fun. And uh, hopefully some of these insights will be useful to some people. And uh, for the things where people think I'm crazy, I'd, I'd love to hear it. So definitely uh, reach out. Yeah, no, you said all good stuff. I don't think anyone's going to think you're too crazy. <laughs> Before I wrap this up, do you want to share any links to your site, Twitter, GitHub profile, anything like that? Yes. Um, I think the best place to check us out is on trymito.io, T-R-Y-M-I-T-O dot I-O. Um, we're currently kind of, we've just redone our full user onboarding process. The tool is much more usable than it was a month ago, and we'd love if you want to kind of download it locally and check it out. Awesome. Yeah, I'll make sure to drop links to all that in the show notes. And on that note, to everyone listening, thanks for tuning in, and I'll see you in the next one. You've been listening to the Running In Production podcast. You can find a full archive of the show at runninginproduction.com. Also, don't forget to subscribe using your favorite podcast player or leave a review if you like the show.